We're on a mission from God. And now, something completely different. Good morning and a happy Saturday to everyone. This is Pastor Matt Youngblood Clark from Ascension Lutheran Church in beautiful South St. Louis. And I am Pastor Jolly John Lukomsky, and at this moment I am up in beautiful Northfield, Minnesota, the only town that not only looks pretty, but it smells nice. <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> and what what is the temperature up in Northfield right now, John? It is. Let me look. I'll tell you. At this very moment, it is 69 degrees. Not Max. bad. Not bad at all for the first part of August. <laughs> yeah. And, and I understand you were up here a, a couple of weeks ago, and it was probably the warmest week we've had all summer. Yeah, yeah, it was. I know. Everyone talks about the Minnesota summers, how, how wonderful they are. I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, we were up for the National Youth Gathering in Minneapolis, and it was, yeah, it got into the 90s. Uh, now, the humidity, I, I grant you, that was a little lower. That was nice. But it was pretty toasty up there, i got to tell you. And the irony is, when you were up here, we had gone back down to uh, New Athens to celebrate some birthdays, and it was really, really hot down there, too. So I guess there was just no avoiding it. But Matt, tell the people about the wonderful experience you had in Minnesota. You had a something about bacon, Matt? That's right. Yeah. Upon your recommendation, John, uh, a flight of bacon. That's right. <laughs> so it was it was delightful. <laughs> Not something you can easily find here in St. Louis. So yeah, three different so, kinds of bacon, three different kinds of dipping sauces for the bacon. Oh, oh, oh boy, my. it was it was something. So so you know, and and we're getting ready in a few months. We'll be back down there to St. Louis. We love St. Louis too, but there definitely are some pluses to uh, living up here in, in Minnesota. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different, if you don't mind. Uh, I don't know that we've ever done this before. We're, we're usually always doing Bible study, but I, could we do a topical study today, Matt? Would that be all right? Well, sure, John. It's okay with me. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to start with asking you a question, all right? Now, now, now we confess that, that Moses uh, wrote all five of the first books of the Bible, the so-called Torah, all yes. right? Yes. So, so how is it? And I, I, I know you've probably been asked this question, and I know you've probably wrestled with this. How is it then that Moses, in the last chapters of the Torah, talks about his death and burial? How can that be possible if it was written by Moses? If Moses is the guy writing it, how is that possible? Well, yeah. I, I, <laughs> that's a good question to wrestle with. Uh, and I guess my response is I don't get a heart, whole lot of heartburn over it. Because <laughs> well, there's medicine for that. If yeah, you do, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, it's from the bacon flight still. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, for me, it, again, it goes back to that that belief that all scriptures are inspired ultimately by God. Uh, and I love how the New Testament talks about even prophecy not having its origin with man, uh, all scripture being God breathed. So whether it's it's Moses writing that and, and God somehow in some way inspired him to write about his own death, which, boy, that would be pretty pretty phenomenal to be writing about your own death when you think about that. What if we had that ability? Uh, or, you know, perhaps there's someone who that, that last chapter, under the inspiration of that same Holy Spirit, uh, wrote about Moses' death, perhaps. 
And perhaps uh, that was... Yeah, maybe, maybe Joshua, huh? Maybe yeah, yeah, that'd be my first guess was maybe Joshua. Uh, certainly that, that next person in line to, to lead the Israelites into the promised land even. Uh, perhaps Joshua added that uh, last part. But regardless, you know, for me, it, it all goes back to God and this, this, this belief that, yeah, this is all inspired by God, whether uh, the Lord worked through Moses or through Joshua or, or someone else, uh, that, that the Lord is behind it. But but I think it is it's something worth giving some thought to and wrestling with. It's kind of a, a fun question to pose, I think. Well, so I raised the question uh, because the Jews actually have a striking answer uh, to that question. Um, and, and we just finished listening to a series of lectures uh, by Professor Isaiah M. Gaffney. Um, he's got a Ph.D. from Hebrew University. He's the sole Rosenblum Professor of Jewish History at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and he's the Director of Graduate Studies at the Rothberg International School of the Hebrew University. So, I mean, this is a, a really credible guy. He this knows what he's talking guy. about. Yeah, well, I didn't pull him off the Internet somewhere. <laughs> it's not off of uh, Wikipedia. Uh, no, no, that's right. <laughs> Which, by the way, I should mention that. I, I think there's actually some mistakes in Wikipedia concerning some of Judaism on the basis of uh, Professor Gaffney's lecture. I need to go in and correct that sometime. Uh, but but the, the thing is, is what I loved about his lecture, it's not a Christian telling us what he thinks Judaism teaches, yeah. but it's actually a Jew giving his perspective about what his religion, what his, his people, what his uh, ethnicity uh, is all about. But, but anyway, back to the question. So, so their answer is really neat. They believe that on Mount Sinai, now get this, on Mount Sinai, that God revealed, in fact, gave to Moses everything in the five books of the Torah. Uh, so in a way, they would, they would agree with, with what you said, only even more so, that, that Moses actually had this information. It was all written down, uh, inspired by God, from the very moment he went up to Mount Sinai, which is why it took him so long up there. Um, although, by the way, that's the Orthodox Jewish opinion. I, I think the uh, uh, um, Reformed Jews would probably agree more with what we talked about at the end, that maybe Joshua was uh, uh, the one who completed it. And they would certainly emphasize more there, there's a human uh, uh, part of what's going on there. But certainly for Judaism, the fact that the Torah is God's ultimate uh, revelation, uh, yes. that, that's a key part of Judaism. So what I'd like to do is talk a little about Judaism today. So that's where we're going to head at this point. All right, okay. well, good. So so in your retirement, you are are you still enriching your learning, listening to the lectures, and, and enriching us, too, on Wrestling with the Basics. So thanks, John, for, for doing that. Well, well, so here's the thing. So it disproves the old theory that old dogs can't learn new tricks. But but the problem is that the old dogs don't retain them real well. <laughs> so that's why that's why I said to Matt, I said, Matt, we got to do this study on Judaism real quick because I don't know if I'll remember it too. Well, you still have it in your noggin. <laughs> well, good. Glad it's working out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, I was I was thinking too about you know in terms of authorship, you know, even books like the Book of Judges, which isn't that far after the the Torah, and at least you know in the the the, the order the books go, um, we don't even know who the author was for that yes. and yet we're okay with that because uh again you know the ultimately god we would say is the author of of all the holy scripture well you know that's interesting because the jews actually have a little different different attitude about the books outside of the torah now, oh, okay. now, now they would all believe this is god's revelation it is part of their their holy literature I, I, i'm not denying that uh, but for them the first five books the books of moses the books that god directly gave to moses they're the most important part of the Bible, and everything else in the Bible is simply kind of a reflection 
uh, upon what comes out of the Torah. Um, and, 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 and so here's the thing. Here, here's what struck me and why I really wanted to share this with you and, and our listeners is I'm afraid that, that most of the things that, that we do when we're interpreting the New Testament and the Jewish practice in the New Testament yes. is not really the way people were doing things back then. Uh, I, I've read many commentators where they talk about the, uh, the Talmud, for example, or, or the Mishnah. Uh, and, and these are very, very important books. Uh, the Mishnah, by the way, is a collection of, of uh, Jewish laws. Uh, the Talmud is actually a collection of discussions about the Mishnah. Uh, uh, there's actually two collections of Talmuds. There, there's a Babylonian one that was written by the rabbis in Babylon. Uh, there's another one that was actually written in Palestine, but for some reason uh, that doesn't have the same kind of authority as, as the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, the, the, the Palestinian one kind of was set aside, and, and, and it's this uh, Talmud. And, and so I'm reading Bible commentators, and they said, well, we understand the Jews were doing this from the Mishnah. We understand the Jews were doing this uh, from the uh, Torah. Uh, not from the Torah. Uh, from from the uh, Talmud, uh, mm-hmm. but the problem is those things were written, say two, three, maybe even a thousand years after the days of Jesus Christ, and they reflect a Judaism uh, that is totally different than what Jesus would have experienced in his lifetime. So let me let me give you an example. Have you guys ever done a Passover seder? Uh, at Ascension or, or at Waterloo, uh, you know, I did it in uh, in college actually. So we, we, I took, okay. I was able to take Greek and Hebrew in college, which was uh, a lot of work, but also you know very uh, helpful too. But after you got done with your third semester of Hebrew, Hebrew three, you were able to have a seder meal together, and some of that was even done in Hebrew, and we could understand some of it. So so that was pretty neat. But yeah, that that's been a few years ago. But then yeah, yeah, I've experienced one before. What just real quickly tell tell people what what was that seder like and how was that presented? Yeah, so not quite the Passover meal you might think of, but presented uh, with with eating and drinking. And uh, the seder meal in particular, I think, as we do it as, as Christians, is to also to bring out that uh, emphasis within this meal of how it points ultimately to Christ, really. Um, and we keep in mind that the events of the first Passover and how the shedding of the blood and, and all those things that took place with the lamb ultimately point us ahead to Jesus. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's a helpful thing for, for even Christians to, to look at. And, uh, you know, if there's someone in your community, uh, that, that has a background in that, I know we're blessed with a, a local, a Jewish uh, Lutheran pastor here in St. Louis that, that I know does that pretty frequently uh, and can really bring out that rich meaning. Boy, that's, uh, that's, that's a nice um, devotional uh, thing to do, especially during the, uh, the season of Holy Week in that time of year, the season of Lent. And, and see, I'm, I'm really glad to use the word devotional. Uh, because that's how it's probably presented, right? It's a, it's a service of prayer. Sure. It's a service of worship. Um, and, and again, there's nothing wrong. We, we did it at St. Paul once we, uh, when Monday, Thursday, we, we had a, a Seder meal and we followed the liturgy. And, and, and like you're right, it, it can be really beautiful because you can see these things that Jews do today. Uh, the technical term for it is the Haggadah. Uh, that, that's the liturgy. Uh, of the Seder. And, and yeah, we can see all kinds of Christian meanings in that because most of the Haggadah comes right out of the Old Testament. But see, here's the problem, that that Haggadah that, that was used as a basis for your Seder, that Haggadah probably wasn't written until a thousand years after Jesus Christ. Um, cause they, it, so, so when the Bible is talking about what Jesus is doing at the Passover, 
you can almost be certain that there was no devotion, there was no worship, there was no prayer involved. And, and this is the thing that Professor Gaffney points out that, that just totally shocked me, because in the days of Jesus, if you wanted to worship God, where did you have to worship, worship him, Matt? Well, primarily the temple in Jerusalem. Not, not, not just primarily, that is where you worshiped him. And you didn't dare worship him anywhere else or you would be accused of idolatry. Let me, there's a couple of passages, man. You got your Bible handy there? Sure. <laughs> Why are you laughing, John? Fun? Oh, so you actually do have your Bible because yeah. I sent you a bunch of I know, of I know, I know. I'm just playing along, John. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. I spoiled the effect. No, no. So, yeah. So, so John was kind enough to send me some, uh, some of his crib notes here from the talk. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and some helpful Bible passages, too. That's good. All right. And I've got so them ready to some... go. Read Psalm 138, verse 2. Okay, I'd be happy to. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And, and so David in the psalm says, where, where do you bow down? Toward the holy temple. Right. So we think about the Muslims facing the east, and, and we think that's kind of a... But no, that's actually would have been a Jewish practice as well. In fact, read Daniel 6, 10. So we got sure. Daniel now. That he's been taken off in captivity in Babylon. But oh, yeah. Look, look what he's doing. And so Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had, win excuse me, windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Yeah, but the focus, I, I mean, that's what he had to do. Because he wasn't, you know, the temple had been destroyed and he'd been taken off in captivity. But but still the focus on Jerusalem. Uh, and so I don't know what Jesus did on the Passover, but I really doubt that there was anything that we would call prayer or worship. Because you just didn't do that apart from the temple. Um, and apart from sacrifice, uh, Gaffney points out, uh, you read about Solomon dedicating the temple, and, and Solomon does say this is the place of prayer. And in fact, he lists all the things that you should be praying about, and that's what you do. You come to the temple if you're going to pray about these concerns for your nation, for your individual, uh, for your family. And then, of course, afterwards, he has what? Thousands and thousands of rams and goats and bulls and what have you sacrificed, because that's how Jews to worship. Um, in fact, we have an example of Jesus at the... This is what struck me, because when I think about the synagogue, and I think about Jesus going to synagogue every yeah. Sabbath, I, I thought about him going and kind of doing like we do in church, right? There was probably some liturgy, probably some psalms were sung, uh, probably some prayers were spoken. Uh, but, but Dr. Gaffney insists, no, no, all they did at the synagogue was you read the Torah because the Torah is really, really important. And then you uh, commented on the Torah. And it's interesting, isn't that the picture of the synagogue that's given us in the Bible? If you got Luke 4 yeah. uh, uh, right there. Yeah. So Luke chapter 4, this is uh, when Jesus is in Nazareth. Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, as was his custom. There you go. Now this is what yep. Jesus yep. does. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And I'm just thinking what an impact that must have had on those people. Because here he reads the scripture and then he says it's actually being fulfilled. But but my point here in the discussion is you'll notice there is no prayer. There is no liturgy. Uh, uh, no, th this is what, in fact, uh, Gaffney says that they found a, a dedication stone from one of the synagogues that would have dated back in those days. And the dedication stone says what the synagogue was dedicated to do. And it says it was dedicated to study the Torah. It was dedicated as a meeting place for the Jews. And it was dedicated as a place where the poor would be helped. But there is no mention at all of prayer or worship because, again, you don't do that. You have to be at Jerusalem, at the temple, to accomplish that. Now, Matt, explain to our listeners why this would be a problem for the Jews, why that would become a real problem if the whole emphasis of the Bible was you had to make your sacrifices, you had to make your prayers, your worship at the temple at Jerusalem. Well, yeah, what happens then when there is no temple? And especially yeah. think finally then in 70 AD when the temple's destroyed, what do you do now when there's not that place of sacrifice and worship? And, you know, you, you know, that you think of Jesus' family making at least that annual pilgrimage there uh, to Jerusalem to worship. And, you know, that episode where Jesus is 12 years old and gets left behind and everything. But what happens when there's no temple to travel to or to worship at? And Matt, I'm glad you brought up that story. I, I didn't have that on my list of notes. But the, this is what it's opened my eyes. You start reading through the New Testament, and reading through the Old Testament, and you see that it's always about going to the temple. That's where the focus is, Jerusalem. Uh, and there's nothing going on worship-wise. I mean, you could pray privately. I'm not denying that. But any kind of corporate prayer, sure. any kind, and, and it all has to involve sacrifice to it. Uh, yeah. uh, so, so what you do then if you're a Jew uh, at 70 AD, of course, the Romans destroyed the temple uh, uh, and, and Jerusalem. Uh, well, you, you try to regain it. And there were actually efforts to do that. Uh, a Jewish general, he led an army to try to free Jerusalem. And of course, he was, he was bitterly defeated. Uh, and at this point, uh, Gaffney says, the Jews really have lost hope. Uh, because they, what can we do? Uh, in fact, he tells this touching story uh, about a uh, uh, a student of, of one of the great rabbis, I think it was uh, Gamil, uh, and he says, what are, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, there are three legs upon which Judaism stands. One is the Torah. Uh, the second is sacrifice and prayer at the temple. And the third is acts of mercy. Uh, and now we've lost one of our legs. How can how can we stand? Uh, and the rabbi responded, "Well, we just need to make the other legs stronger." Uh, and, and that's not a bad thought. So so let's focus more on acts of mercy. Um, but the sad thing is, is what happens within Judaism. And again, this isn't my opinion. This this is from Professor Gaffney. Is that it becomes a religion focused upon ritual and focused mm. upon rules. And that's where we get all these books we talked about that were written several hundred years later, the Mishnah and the Talmud, because that's what it's all about. You, 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 you replace sacrifice with prayer, and you come up with a very detailed ritualistic way of doing it uh, in order that you can be fulfilling what you can no longer really fulfill, uh, which is the uh, uh, sacrifices and the worship of the temple. Um, so here's why I bring this up, because I think this is of great impact uh, for us as Christians. Sure. Um, so, so it occurred to you, you know what the Islam law is called, right? Yeah, the Sharia law. The Sharia law. Yes. And, and what I didn't understand is the Jews, uh, our Judaism has the same thing. It's called, oh, I, where's my notes? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's called the halakha. I think that's the word for their 
their laws. And, and so they become a system just like the, the Muslims about laws and about uh, regulations. And it's interesting that Christianity did the same thing. Uh, this is what Catholicism did. They, they made the whole focus upon uh, medieval Catholicism anyway. I'm not talking about Roman Catholics today, but medieval Catholicism was all about rituals and laws and regulations and these things you had to, to fulfill and, and uh, you know, taking vows and what have you. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting. You, you know what the Lutheran uh, uh, apology uh, calls it? The apology of the Augsburg Confession that calls this Catholic practice of having all these rituals and laws? It calls it the Jewish opinion. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and you know what I worry about? I, I see that in the church today. I see people, again, who want to put the focus on there's only a certain way to worship, only a certain ritual that can be used, uh, uh, all kinds of, uh, um, like within the Baptist, you know, you, you can't drink any alcohol and there's no dancing. And, and so those kind of uh, regulations and rules. Uh, and, and yet it occurs to me that the, the early church never did that, do they, Matt? They, they, they're never looking for a holocaust, a Sharia law. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, so, so for example, what, what's Paul's teaching about eating uh, meat to idols? Well, you're free to do it, but you also want to keep so many of those things, your, your brother in mind, you know, keep your neighbor in mind and, and what's in their best interest. But yeah, yeah, as, as a Christian, yeah, you're free to eat or not eat something sacrificed to an idol because Paul basically says an idol's not a god, so don't worry about it. And, and see, what you said there, that that's the crucial thing. So a Christian can eat meat from idols. Or a Christian cannot eat meat offered to idols. Yes. The the issue is how does it impact my neighbor? Yeah, That's what you exactly. just said. That was, it was always about love. Same thing with uh, uh, um, circumcision. Could a Christian be circumcised? Sure. Of, of course. In fact, now we're getting into our Timothy study that we'll pick up again next week. Wasn't Timothy circumcised? Yeah. Yeah. Paul, I think, himself did it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then again, in other instances, Paul would say, well, no, no, no. You don't need to be circumcised. So... Christians can be circumcised. Christians don't have to be circumcised. Again, it depends on the situation. Uh, I, I, well, we'll talk maybe more about that uh, next week when we go back to Timothy, why why Paul would have had him circumcised, because it was, again, for concern for the neighbor. Could you read one more passage for me, Acts 15? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality. And from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And see, again, isn't that beautiful? This is what you do in the synagogues. You read and you study Moses. And the early Christian church was really concerned about Judaism. And you need to understand the early Christian church really was a Jewish Christian church. So they say some things that are important, right? You, 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 you shouldn't have anything to do with idols. Well, of course not. First commandment stuff. Uh, no sexual immorality. Of course, that's uh, uh, also in, in, in the commandments. But then this business about what is strangled and from blood. See, we do that all the time. I, I love a steak that's nice and rare. Uh, but in this context, in the concern for these people who were taught that you, you can't have any blood at all, all right, we'll do that. We'll do that. But it's not about establish in another halakha. It's not about establishing sharia. It's about loving the neighbor. There is one other really so, important John, thing. Okay, wait. Can we, I, I know. We're, we're out of time. We're almost out of time. But we'll Go pick ahead. it up next week. Okay, Definitely. Now? Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to start uh, 
playing the closeout music. Okay. But, but no, well, let's pick it up next week, John, because I, I think there's some other things we can bring up about the temple, too. And well, what does that mean for Christians today if there's no temple? I mean, do we need exactly. to worry about that? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, actually, that's a good thing for us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, great. Uh, join us next week, and we'll finish up that study of Judaism and maybe get into 2 Timothy as well as uh, you join us again for Wrestling with the Basics.